Welcome to the Brilliant Podcast, a podcast of anarchist theory. This is going to be, I believe, episode 80, 80 or 81. And we are sitting down and talking with Chisel. So it's complicated to talk about nuance in a nuanced way. So this is the second or third, depending on how you count it, conversation that comes up as a consequence of trying to talk to Keith Preston. And I don't want to distrust my my own sort of sensibility here. I want to talk to people who who have what can be described at the very least as problematic ideas or or who who went a went a wrong path. And um and the Keith Preston conversation was that. You know, it it, it was it was trying to talk to someone who who, I don't know, who basically is working off of a, a, a set of sheets that I have no idea why someone would do and, and try to understand like that motivation and, and, that, and that articulation. But we now live in a time where, depending on what script someone is working off of, they're in the category of, in Keith Preston's case, racist. And so, so talking to him is not... Uh, going to be useful for what I'm trying to do with the Brewing Podcast, which is talk about anarchism and talk about the ideas of of freedom and you know freedom of of association and how to live in a different way than the world that we live in now, and and use Keith you know use Keith Preston's ideas as a way to do that. And one of the hard things about reviewing use, use Keith Preston's ideas as a way to talk about anarchy. Yeah, not sure. as a way to live in the world. Go ahead. Sure. Well, I mean, obviously, there's tons of nuance here. You know, once you're really trying to carve out, like, how does Keith Preston fill an empty space that isn't necessarily empty? Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, so today I'm, we're going to talk to Chisel, who definitely will have a lot of strong ideas uh, about this topic. And um, so, welcome, Chisel. Hi. <clears throat> You wanted to yeah, introduce I'll yourself? Just, I just wanted to say that um, I have listened to the Keith Preston brilliant episode that is not going to be aired, and I have not read Tribes, which um, uh, is this magazine that he works on. Um, and I have listened to the Dominique episode that hasn't yet been aired. It'll air just prior to this one. Okay, good. So um, so some of this is bouncing off of that. Um, yeah, and that's basically it. I've, I've been motivated by issues of race and identity for a really, really long time. And this is this has got me a little fired up. So yeah, I mean, the idea f- from from our perspective or from my perspective is that usually when we approach issues of race, identity, um, community, connect connection, we're doing it from the perspective of of what does it look like to be white presenting, mm-hmm. or what does it f- look like to be on the outside of that definition. And in Keith Preston's case, I mean, of course, I absolutely feel like I'm, the, I'm on the outside of whatever it is that he identifies with. Mm-hmm. But I think he's trying to make the case that that's not the case. Yeah. Like, he definitely, I think, in his conversation with me and in general, would, would make the case that you all, what presenting in parentheses, are my community. You, that, that whatever it is that I'm arguing for, that's us. Uh-huh. Yeah, I... I so I did the I did a I listened to the Dominique 
podcast and I wrote notes. And so this is going to be a little bit awkward because I feel like I, there's things that I want to say and I'm not feeling totally free to just respond to your, to your question mm-hmm. provocation. So um, <clears throat> the thing that I was going to end with w- was the thing that you and Dominique ended with, which is you talking about when he's, um, when Keith Preston is talking about nationalism or when any, when any person who's bringing up these kinds of topics and is being fuzzy in a way that is seductive to us, you know, that, that w- where you do have to ask the question, where exactly are you coming from and what exactly are you meaning? And they're not clear. They're not upfront about what it is they're talking about. You know, that, what you and Dominique end with is what is, na- what nation is he talking about? Sure. What is he saying? And, you know, and, and the fact, yeah, so, and that question should be easily answerable. And if it's not, then we should be suspicious as, in fact, we are suspicious. So, yeah, that was appropriate. Um, so, I guess maybe just to follow up on that, when have you heard pro-nationalistic arguments that have been appealing to you? Well, if I can identify them as pro-nationalist, then by definition, they're not appealing. So, like, that's that, which is definitely part of this t- push and pull, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I think that what I wanted to start out with is is a discussion about Bolo Bolo in a little bit more detail, because it is the sort of transition, it is, it is the space in which his stuff, it, it's the end, I guess, in some way, for, for him to be relevant at well, all. Well, from a post-left perspective, it's absolutely the end. Yeah. But partially what we're talking about is how the post-left engine, you know, if it started in the 80s, it's run out of gas. And so today, these conversations go right back to the old school uh, nature of being identitarian or racialized. So, so when you're referring to Bola Bola in this context, you're, are you referring to the, the way in which Bola Bola was very subcultural, or are you referring to something else? I'm talking about its content. I mean, I don't know exactly what you mean by it being subcultural, except that it, it, was only, exi- it only existed in a subculture. Like, you know, not that many people know about it or something. But the content of Bolo Bolo is, yeah, it, it, it is a vision of the world, of the, it is a vision of a possible future where uh, small communities of people, they can't be more than two, 500 uh, people, are organized and organize themselves around desires, around, around, a, around a common thing that they do or that they are or that they identify themselves as, meaning that they act in a way that they each recognize with each other. Oh my God, I'm getting so tangled. Um, that they that it is self-determined. So people choose to be in a bolo sure. based the on what they will, determine as... But the question of will rather than genetics yes, or, yes. or your origin Or story. their understanding of what genetics means to what it is they're doing. Like, in other words, right, which is where it gets muddy. Okay, so I'll leave that aside for the moment. Um, but because it is an anarchist utopia or is an anarchist future, because it allows it, it not only allows for it absolutely deals with people disliking each other. With, with it does not pretend that all the bad people are going to disappear or going to be, you know, like that the the that the future is going to that we're all going to be unified. There is none of that. There is absolute understanding that people will dislike each other for very good reasons in the future. And how do you, and like, that's just going to be the way it is. That's central to that. It is central to that. Yeah. And so, right. I'm going to read the back cover of the first edition. Go. Just so people who have never read the book have an understanding as to how it orients itself. In a larger city, we could find the following bolos. Alco Bolo, Sim Bolo, Les Bolo, Play Bolo, 
no bolo, fadome bolo, masso bolo, blue bolo, diabolo, marl bolo, marks bolo, anarcho bolo, incapacit bolo, herb bolo, jizo bolo, krishna bolo, and so on, all assisting in the obstruction of the capitalist and or socialist planetary work machine. To me, that that's when I refer to it being subcultural. That's what I'm referring to. Okay, so they are subcultures, and like there, there's different cultures. Each, each bolo, bolo has a more or less right? has a subcultural orientation that is yes. Well, driven and he's by doing will. that. He's doing that as the selling point of the book. But but there could be capitalist bolo. Like that is part of the premise of the book, right? No, which is creepy. That's why this is. That's why this is the inroad to some this conversation about Keith Preston. At least that's how I see it. Like, so, I actually well, that may be the case, but I think right now I'm I'm very uh, I'm struck by the way in which Marxism and sort of red the new way in which red orientations have uh, have have started to come up in social media contexts because you know first of all if we understand capitalism at all we understand it as not something that 500 people could do sure. Well, no, I bring this up because no, I don't true. think I that you could have a capitalist I... bolo because, but but this is actually one of my my criticisms of the book. So the book has at least three parts, maybe more, depending on how you count. Um, and the part that I like the most is a part that that's more or less like a dictionary. It, it it shows a symbol, it says the word for the symbol, and then it defines the symbol, and in doing so constructs yes. this new world. The first part of the book is this insanity. <laughs> About how we're going to get, get from there. here to there, yeah, yeah. That and makes no sense. and it makes well, it's it's, it's a fantasy. It's, it's a fantasy. A, it, exactly, it's absolutely a fantasy, and you know, it's just <laughs> it's really a fantasy. <laughs> and the third part of the book tries to be realistic, right? And it's it, worse. And, <laughs> yeah, and it is worse yeah, because yeah. basically <clears throat> it transitions from basically a dictionary to. Uh, extolling the virtues of the pre-capitalist marketplace. And and in doing so, it just comes off horrific because it basically, yet again, reorients any sort of utopian ideas into an economic model and and vision. And of course, it's all like, you know, arguing over a table and a a pile of spices. (laughs) But but that's not how I experience capitalism. Right, no, for sure. And and it definitely doesn't use the word, and it tries to avoid it, I guess. But but it basically creates a world where where there still is an answer to these to the kinds of economic criticism that you'd expect from a book like Bola Bola. So, so yeah, so well, capitalism was a bad example. No, I, but but it's but it it's not. It, anyway, we can move on. Like, well, the reason I'm not I don't move on is just to make it clear to a listener not yes. like i'm yes. not trying to teach you what the book says i'm i'm talking it through for yeah 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 no that's good yeah i guess i'm i am ready to talk more about bola bola but i do think that we've now discussed the points of it that are relevant for this for this for keith preston being well, a question or something this is a this is a happy uh direction to go in direction to go in but but i to to bring it back to to the keith preston thing yeah. the thing that i just sort of want to say at this point is to say that like what I don't feel from Keith Preston and the people who we're going to call, you know, the secret nationalists or something, that the, the people who, who avoid, like, is that they're avoiding this terminology. They're, yeah. they're, they're trying to split the difference in this way that, like, 
Yeah, Dominique brought up this interesting point, which is why? Why are they trying to be sneaky? Like, the idea that anarchists are some group that they, like, are they, yeah, that that they're trying to sneak in as if we're suddenly going to, you know, if they ever are clear about what it is they're thinking, that it's going to be okay with us, like the vast majority of us or something? It's very odd that they're not being more upfront, unless what they're doing is hiding from themselves what, you know, the ramifications of what they think, you know, which is sad, but not unusual. Like many people are hiding from the consequences of their ideas. Um, But yeah, it's just, it's, it's weird that they, that he would consciously be sneaky about something when, which I might, you know, maybe other people in the project are not, they're, they're just not thinking through some things or something and that's fine. Or they in fact disagree with him. That's also possible, but that he has been around long enough and presumably been around conversations enough to know what it is he's doing that he's not being upfront. Yeah, so it is it is odd. I'm going to to talk a little bit of, in a type of meta that I don't normally do. So, one of the things that is unusual about post-left anarchism as a position is it's the opposite of persuasive. Yes. Yes, indeed. Now, there are other perspectives that have this going on too, but the people who argue for them still attempt to do it in a persuasive way. So, so in other words, post-left anarchism is oftentimes, I, I oftentimes see it as a very rational response mm-hmm. to the flaws in leftism. Mm-hmm. So when it presents itself in that way, of course, like there's a certain kind of person who's very persuaded by rational argumentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so they see it as like <laughs> the next level of rational argumentation. If the left argues that, right. you know, capitalism and the state are unfair and, 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 you know, we should take positions that both reflect that uh, a fairness that we desire. Right. Whereas post-left anarchism basically says, for better or for worse, yes, this is unfair, but it's more, more than just unfair. It's, it's it's wrong. Right, of course. What am I thinking? Like, and anarchists do the same thing, right? Right. We, right, we don't talk about what our ideas are because we want people to connect with us and then and then believe in us and then get introduced to the ideas as a way, oh, God, that's so gross. Okay, you're right, of course. What am I thinking? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so basically the soft nationalism is starting with a more, per, like, they're trying to be persuasive right. and sort of, like, making <clears throat> common sense argumentation right, right. around how the racial system... Right. Is wrong, and and race means something that's that's worth having. Something, yeah. Well, I mean, but that's the thing. Like the reason why racialists stay racialists is because for them and for and and the subjective world that they live in, race means something and it's important. Yeah. And so, so a post-racial perspective, which they would definitely identify as having, and perhaps we would too, says that mm. that the things that you get out of race are actually lies. Like, more or less, it's a persuasion scheme much more than it's a real scheme. Yeah. So, so how do we reconcile that particular, like, how do we thread that needle? Yeah, I think that what I understand of them is that they're not saying that they're post, that they're, that they're saying that they're post-racialist, but they're not actually post-racialist. That they're having, that they are, that they're accepting, that they're accepting the same understanding of race that everybody else who thinks race is super important is accepting, only they're, they're saying that it's... Yeah, I, but, you know, maybe I'm not... I think that this is worth digging into a bit more and, and perhaps even using the, their own words. Like, again, the thing that you get out of tribes is you get two different uh, worldviews. One worldview says, I am Polish, 
Therefore, I have a Polish worldview that I'm going to share with you, and that, that involves making latkes and living in a, a wooden hut rather than a mud hut. Um, but of course, I don't live in that world. But but this would be how I would live if I were to be truly, truly free. Polish, okay. Truly free. Okay. And the other perspective is to say that I'm going to live in a way that looks an awful lot like living like a Polish person or like a true Pole, whatever that means. But I'm going to create that synthetic environment, not because I know that that's true, but because I really want to live in this way. And and the process of constructing me living in this way is that's who I am. Mm-hmm. In other words, like that's a synthetic nationalism mm-hmm. that they're creating. And the Poles, of course, would say that they have a true nationalism, which is, of course, utter bullshit because the vagaries of history have fused a whole bunch of different actual tribal people into something called Pole. Mm-hmm. So, so this is part of that part of what's weird about this, like the way in which they've sort of taken out the white supremacist aspect of nationalism and instead pretended like their nationalism is tribal. Like they, they play a lot of games and, and obviously Dominic and I talk about this all the time with the fact that lots of native American yeah, people yeah, yeah. call themselves nations. Yeah. And so, so yeah. that, yeah, the lack of clarity about what nation means is definitely one of the things. Yeah. So, yeah, one of the things that I wanted to, one of one of the things that stuck out, stuck out to me when I was listening to the Keith Preston conversation was him. You know, he started out very early on, I think, saying in response to you, "I don't think about race," and how, tr- like, how uh, that is so noteworthy anytime mm-hmm. anybody says it, and especially somebody white says it. Um, and at the same time, I have heard that said multiple times by people from, the, you know, people who in other ways I more or less trust um, in their good intentions who are from the UK because race in the US at least um, and is such a marker for a whole raft of other ideas, mm-hmm. you know, how you respond to that. And it's not in the UK. In the UK, it's class. And that's the marker. And that's the foundational thing to, you know, to make sure that we're all on the same team. We can talk about class in some, you know, some agreed upon agreed upon yeah. way, whatever the, not necessarily sophisticated, but just agreed upon. Um, you know, and, and, and what that means about, you know, so, so, Part of what pissed me off about the Keith Preston interview was, or, or talk, was that I gave him so much benefit of the doubt, and and prior to prior to finally, you know, prior to the front, yeah. the point where I'm like, oh no, okay, no, I was right, we were all right. He's he is that fucked up. We're not, you know, this is not right. Well, but, but let, let's be let's be specific about this. Yeah. you're talking about one might not do their work or their thinking work within a racialized context, right? But really, and and so if you were to say that, that's one thing. Right. But in fact, what he was saying was, I don't want to use the word race to 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 lay any of the rest of my superstructure on. I what? Yeah. How would I say what he? I would say that he was saying that he's not participating in the in a conversation where he doesn't where he hasn't helped determine the terms that he's insisting on. A, he's. He, that he's insisting on a, yeah, on on you accepting his terminology is yeah. is partly what I'm where well, I'm going, and that's on some level that's okay in a conversation. I mean, almost but everybody again, I ever talked to does does uh, this. absolutely, absolutely. 
And when it's a white person saying that about race, it's suspect. You can't, like, that's part of the humility that people have to bring. Well, let's... Oh, God, I get so worked up. Okay. Well, let's use another example yeah. of, the, of the same thing. Okay. Because, for lack of better language, if you're going to try to have a conversation with Kevin Tucker, and you're not going <laughs> to accept civilization, <laughs> domestication... Right, right, absolutely. As the terminology in which you're going to frame the conversation, yeah. you're not going to have a conversation. Exactly, with exactly. He's going to spend exactly. the entire conversation right. explaining to you why right. civilization and domestication are the only terms useful to be explaining the problems of the world. Yes. So, what was Kevin Tucker's, or sorry, what was Keith Preston's terms, in your opinion? Uh, like, in other words, he, he didn't use race, and he wasn't really like, like the one thing I would get out of him is was that he's more or less an individualist in that world. In yeah, the, world of the things that he, yeah, I guess I have to say that the things he was saying weren't didn't stand out to me enough to note them as mm. as his determining terms. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, it's. I mean, again, but he was fighting for you know he was fighting for the torn nation, so he was trying to make nation what it is he wanted it to be. Like that by definition, that's why we're having this conversation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, and that's also always squishy, like. Like yeah, I, I yeah. I mean the the way in which he tries to escape uh, what we'll call like context. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Was he at some point sort of described his project as critiquing American foreign policy, mm-hmm. which I find to be like what the fuck. Well, I mean, I think that this is, this is an interesting anarchist question because when I first became an anarchist, I remember vividly. Many of the anarchists I met, and perhaps this is because I was introduced to anarchism like a lot of people were through Noam Chomsky, who Noam Chomsky entirely it's talked entirely about, about Israel, yeah. About, well, um, foreign in the, policy. In the media, yeah. American foreign policy. Yeah. Uh, actually, I was first exposed to his books on Vietnam, uh, okay. <clears throat> which is not Israel. Really? So, the, but the, um, but the point being that, that, like, for me, having a, an, for me, Thinking about foreign policy all the time feels like an idiotic thing to do because um, you have absolutely no power over the topic. Like, like you're, sure. it's, it's like caring about the Redskins yeah. or any other sports team. So, so, yes, it's deep. It's interesting. There's tons of stuff in there like that you can spend all your days on. You can read the Wall Street Journal and New York Times and get really excited. But... What does it have to do with the politics of daily life, which is what I think anarchism is? Well, I think that part of what focusing on something outside in the rest of the world is, is about if the, the I mean, it does, it, so if you, if the U.S. is doing these terrible things in other places where it's easier to find out about, for example, than, than what it's doing to us, I mean, you know, it, it's a classic, it is a very leftist thing. It's like far away is easier to fight for than the ways that we are benefiting or or, or suffering, basically. So it's that representational, there is a whole Christian thing going on there. Never mind. Yes. It's not, I agree that I would not call that anarchist either. So to talk about race. Yes. As a white person in America. Yes. If that's what you are. That's what I am. Um, it's another thing you don't have any control over. Right. Well, right. I mean, yeah. And, the, and this, this, and this really power. brings us back to the way in which the 21st century really represents the fact that you are personally responsible for everything right. that you have an interest in. Yes, or are touched by in any way, but certainly that anything you could be called being privileged by. So I guess yeah. this, for me, I, I would chain this into a conversation about how the, the feminist line from the 70s, right, the personal is the political, has become almost like an, uh, 
like a demon that's 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 filled every space available to it. Yeah, I mean, this is a segue to what I one of the things I wanted to be talking about, which is how all the English we have such a problem with talking about these things, all of these things, identity, race, um, nation, like all of these things, because the language is all because people everybody uses the same terms, and everybody has mixed agendas. And different definitions. And different definitions based on their based on their agendas. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and that's true for everybody. I'm not me included, all everybody. And and it makes it impossible to have a conversation about just this topic unless you totally have some f- understanding of a foundation of who the other person is who you're talking to or and or who's listening to you. Like and that that you know, context is always a running theme through basically anything I ever want to say. And and this thing about, and and it just has, that has huge implications from like anonymous comments, like what the fuck does an anonymity do to our, our understanding of what it is we're saying to people when we talk about these really loaded concepts, which, you know, basically any re- relevant conversation that we're going to have with anybody is going to, you know, if it's meaningful, it's touching on these things that we could be saying anything to them. Like we could, the people could be hearing us in so many different ways. Yes, and they will. And they will absolutely be, you know, because yeah. So, so the, the exercise then becomes how do we gain enough of an understanding of who it is we're talking to, to have a meaningful conversation. And this, I guess, is where I would bring Antifa into this because I feel like the tendency of Antifa is to be shallow and reactive and they are not, you know, like there is not this sense of who is it who's saying this thing. And and this is Alexander Reed Ross and the and the fascist creep. This is absolutely what they are doing. Is they are they are pulling out the words and saying the words are the problem, rather than where they come from. And this also I would say relates to the to the question of you know are there things in tribes that could have been published in Black Seed like. Sure. You know, okay, maybe there are. I haven't read Tribes. I'm not going to challenge you and Dominique when you say that that's the case. Um, But the fact that it's in our, it's in Black Seed means something. It means it is not the same as it being in Tribes. It's not the same article. Being being in Black Seed makes it not the same article because we, because it's us, because it's people who are, you know, the people who are reading Black Seed are different from the people who are going to read Tribes. Sure. Even if they're the same, you know, like they can be the same people and it still means something different. So, I, I'm not probably being very clear. But, but yeah, like the the point of, yeah, just context is too vague of a word at this point and I rely on it too much and I know that's true, but, but history, setting, you know, desired outcome, well, and this is why I was trajectory. Like this is why you know, within the context of the Brian podcast, I do try to let people tell their own story as much as as much as I humanly can, because I think that you know that this is relevant. Like the fact that Keith Preston has been around the anarchist milieu long enough to have to have been speaking to love and rage and the particular splits and divisions that were happening in love and rage, which absolutely, you know, love and rage ended up being about three things, prisons, anti-racism read through race trader. And what was the third thing? (laughs) But, you know, basically prisons and race were central to the Love and Rage project, especially as it as it ended, and then to whatever it is that came well, next. Well, a national organization on some level, I would say. Was the um, 
Like they had three principles. Three. Oh, the principles. They had three okay. positions. Uh-huh. Um, but and the point is, is that like, like the most anarchist of those of the three positions in the, in a historical sense is what Nethak inherited, mm. and the other aspects, which are more or less a, an, there's an argument that like if there's something new in anarchy land, it, or especially from an organizational or or whatever perspective, it's what bring the ruckus and and other more specifically race traitory focused uh, groups have been doing. So that so because Keith Preston came from that origin story, you and and reacted against basically the the bifurcation of like the organizationalists who he perhaps would have had more in common with mm-hmm. and the and, and all the race people. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and then the, and then took that as a motivation to build his quote unquote pan anarchism like he knows this context he he comes out of it or at least comes comes out of it from like you know an observer perspective mm-hmm. and and ref- basically refuses to speak to it and and i think that that is interesting um uh, mostly because of course like do you remember the person who the i think it was the person who did banana the bay area national anarchist people mm-hmm. Andrew Yeoman, I think he called himself. Mm, yeah, yeah. I believe when he wrote his story, he said that he flew to Detroit. So so this is important in the Love and Rage story is the fact that Lorenzo Camboa Urban came on the scene mm-hmm. dur- uh, a decade before Love and Rage, but, but was staying connected to groups like Love and Rage. And he, along with this person named Ernesto Aguilar, um, became the the sort of co-founders of what we call APOC today. And the first APOC gathering happened in Detroit. Andrew Yeoman, as a self-identified white person, came to the event thinking that he was sort of going to be welcomed or that he was part of this dialogue and, of course, got bounced. And, and especially in the way in which Andrew Yeoman articulated whiteness as being like his category, um, Anyways, part of his story is is being bounced on that night, and, and I don't want to confuse Keith Preston from Andrew. Bon- sure. From from Andrew, but but obviously their stories are not so d- dissimilar. Mm-hmm. In that, <clears throat> Keith didn't like the the rate ratio or yeah the racial way in which he was ne- excluded. Yes, he right. was excluded. Yes, both of them were excluded right. along race lines right. and in ways that ended up calling themselves nationalist. And so, so what's, I guess the challenge for the left, which is not my particular challenge, but it's the challenge for the left is how do you reconcile your politics with whiteness? Yes, exactly. And from a post-left perspective, like, you know, one would have to sort of say that like a pox on both your houses. That's a bad pun, but yes, moving on. Um, but, but what that means specifically is, is that like, like it's easy to reject the nationalist or the the white nationalist perspective because it's so minoritarian and it's so small even in in its current alt right manifestation, especially within our within anarchist politics. Yeah. But this problem of what to do about white people. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Who who basically don't know any better. Like right. by right. and large, like yeah. like these people don't recognize that 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 they're performing in a way that that basically the academic racial. Uh, community have fully understood for for decades 
And, you know, in other words, there is something called whiteness studies. And by and large, these, these white people are performing as subjects to this, to a whiteness studies sort of like lens. Okay. Let's, I'm, I'm building this sort of, this tower to the sky. (laughs) And so let me slow down and, and sort of say, what about this conversation is anarchist? Which, which conversation? Well, so for instance, is it anarchist to say that black people should organize amongst themselves and do their own thing? And, you know, and of course our inclination is to say, go for it, do your thing, but it's not going to win. Yeah, I don't use the criteria of winning anymore. That's fine. Um, my, I don't think I can answer that question. I feel like people should do what they feel is going to work for them the best. Um, and that's going to be different for different people, including people of, I mean, black people and Chinese, I mean, whatever, like, um, yeah, I don't know where to go. I had something and then I lost it. So the, the question of, you yeah, can't, you race, can't have pregnant silences race, on, a I, on a podcast. I understand. Well, but <laughs> the sound editor can edit that stuff out. Um, the idea that we're all trying to find the ways that we like identity is about what is at least identity for anarchists to me, I think is about what is the foundation for us, for our resistance? Like, how do we most, how do we found, how do we base, what do we base our resistance on? And, you know, the, the appeal of things like race as determined, which it has been absolutely determined by the state is that it is un, you can't, you can't, it, it, it's as close to objective as you get, are going to find in today's world. So that there is a, there is a way you cannot retreat from your race. And, and this, I think, speaks to the question of, priv- of like white skin privilege or something, like that there is a way to retreat from race on some level. Whatever, I'm getting off into a different topic. Um, yeah, talking about race is a huge topic and probably not exactly where, we want, where I want to go for this podcast right now. I feel like it's a central point. It is a central point, but I mean, it's more... Okay, but let me just say a couple of positions. Yeah. I don't respect white as a racial category. I also don't respect black as a racial category. Both of them are synthetic categories. As is Native American. As is as right. Native American, absolutely. Right. These are synthetic categories. As is Asian, of course. All of them, yeah, exactly. That's what I meant by saying the, the state is, has determined it. Like, and these this are is why the trend in, the, in modern indigenous circles is to say, I'm Ottawa. Right. 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 So white people and black people basically can't do that. At at best, black people can say, I know that my ship came from West Africa. Right. Right. And and and, and white people can say, you know, mostly I came I'm, from Ireland. Right. Mostly I came from Poland or whatever right. the hell it is. Right. And they um, usually pick. They say I'm Celtic right, or right, Germanic. Right. Or no, something. I mean, and we could talk about, you know, how white... We could talk about how white people are fucked because if they try to do that, then it sounds just like what we're talking about, what we're talking about, which is bullshit, you know, yeah, which is or or which is an entry point to racism is is, I think, the issue more than nationalism per se. Although, again, depending on what national means. But that's because we're talking about nations in terms of winners and losers when you're referring to the racism, right? In other words, the global south are the losers, the global north are the winners. Well, no, more that people, white power people talk about being proud of being white along those same cultural lines. 
you know, so that you sound like it's hard to talk about. I am I am trying to go back to my Celtic ancestors mm-hmm. because that is where I come from, and that is a way of honoring tradition, and that is a way of remembering when I was indigenous, and all of these things that other people, other the people of color, talk about as being important, mm-hmm. especially in the face of white people trying to act whatever the fuck, especially Native American, as a way to gain credibility or something in their. Um, and so, but if you talk about going back to your white, whatever, pagan roots, roots yeah. it sounds like you were valuing whiteness more than you're valuing other people because that's the context that we live in. It's a racist context. Yeah, it's, it's, it's strange, though, you know, because when, when we finally get to this point in a, in a conversation, um, if a person of color refers to their ethnic or, or, or their origin stories yeah. and use racial or tribal language to do it, they're usually believable. Whereas when a white person does it, it mostly sounds like they've watched too many Disney cartoons. And and that's like really sometimes when we're having these conversations, there's a real perception and believability question mm-hmm. embedded in there. Mm-hmm. Like it's pretty easy for us to say that um, whatever, that white people are liars and people of color are not. But of course, neither is true because neither group like the way in which history has and, and family generally cleanses the truth out of these stories, for me, brings me to the conclusion that like most of these stories are synthetic. They're, they're not made up, but they're based in reality rather than the reality. I, there's no way I could disagree with that. I do want to add, though, that, that to trouble that a little bit, that in the same way people of an older generation would have said the same thing about anarch- somebody who is young who is saying they're an anarchist or somebody who is getting a commitment ceremony instead of getting married. Like there is something inherently not compelling about people who are trying to create something new mm-hmm. and, and trying to go back to a white s- subset of something does, is an, is on some level a new thing. It is a, it is a reaction to people of color saying this is a good thing to do. And that's new. So I'm not just like both. I think both of those things are going on at the same time. Hmm. Uh, I yeah. Uh, I mean to bring it back around to where we started. Yeah, yeah. This is a question about persuasion. Right. I'm never going to persuade you uh, that you're part of my story. Right. Like like arguably the story of Ottawa people in northern Michigan is a story of you know being water based traveling all the time and you know canoes like that's not that's not celtic sure it's not germanic even if it was um and and so it puts us in this in this strange story where most people we engage with we have to accept that um like they're not part of a bigger story a story of a people they're instead little stories stories of a person subject to a world of stories i i bring this up because like this is the part that really is where keith preston lost me Mm. he was unwilling in any way shape or form to talk about stories at all so i mean and perhaps the the maybe a good place for this to go is to talk about spirituality (laughs) because by and large when people talk about identity like the way that they make it real no, I'm I'm chuckling because that was absolutely the last thing that I wanted to bring up was about spirituality. Um, 
it is something that you and Dominique both, or I guess you bring up at the end of, or toward the end of the last episode. And it was, and it's striking to me because not spirituality, I guess I'm, I'm thinking of it as a marker in a conversation. Like I'm, it's, I feel very meta about talking about it right here because it's, there's something um, that it stands in for these things that we have no yes. words for. Right. And that, in fact, we can't have words for it because if we have words for it, then it's something else than what it is. Yeah. And but this so, is the way in which all spiritualization, spiritual topics have become secularized is because of the, the way in which people try to do this. Say more. Well, if I want to talk about the magic woo-woo feelings I get. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you can't. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, and so... And I, I guess I'm not sure what to do with that, except to note that people, a lot of people are bringing in spirituality into conversations that, mm-hmm. I, you know, didn't use, they didn't used to have that word. Um, and Jay-Z is one obvious example, but many, many people are doing it also. And um, I would compare it to the movement in the 70s when the anti-war movement that became sort of conflated with the countercultural movement of the hippies became more and more conflated with the countercultural movement of the of the hippies, which then became in the seventies a series of cults right. and and removals from this world by way of spirituality and spiritual language. And this current time frame, the way in which anarchists have moved into positions of woo, have very uh, similar echoes. Yeah, yeah. And and how spirituality can be a stand-in for the things that we're talking about. Like, in other words, in other words, I'm turning this into more of a conversation about identity. So, so identity means a huge raft of, you know, a wide variety of 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 levels of of choice. So, I was initially, I was earlier talking about how we can't choose to to how other people view our skin color um, or our language or whatever, um, but we can choose. That we call ourselves anarchists, or that we that we deal with anarchists, we can choose what we say our spirituality is, or how we practice it. Um, and so there is this, you know, yeah, be, because this this uh, series of the brilliant is about how do people decide who they interact with. Spirit, putting, making it as a spiritual decision, or calling it that, is again one that is more self determined. I would say, um, but also leaves it very open in this other way. Like it's very, and I guess I'm talking, I'm thinking about cults and about how, how cults fit, fill some need. And one of the needs that they fill or one of the, one of the directions that spirituality aims at is the idea that we don't feel like we have a lot of control in our lives and that things that are happening or the ways that things are getting reported on around the world and in the environment and in Washington, D.C., and all of these things act to make me anyway, and I can only imagine other people feel less powerful, feel like we have less agency, less things we can do, less recourse. Um, And so spirituality then becomes sort of the only direction to go in. Like we have to have some, you know, if if anything is going to change, it's not going to be rational, it's not going to be logical, it's not going to be, you know, because, uh, you know, a clear set of consequences based on some clear thing that I can do right now. You know, arguably Antifa is also part of that, like that people are getting simpler in what it is they're trying to do because 
because being deep doesn't seem like it fucking makes a bit of difference. Like, you know, like the idea that, yeah. Can you remind me of the name of the seventies? The seventies Oregon free love cult. No, I don't remember. I thought you watched the documentary. I did watch the documentary, but I don't remember names. The only name cult name I'm remembering right now is Heaven's Gate, but yeah. that was not it. The point is, is that you know, in the seventies in Oregon, there was this active cult that now has a documentary series about it, and it it brings up a lot of these issues in a way that are that's, that's really harsh. Yeah. Right. Because another way to describe cults of this type is subculture. Right. And and this was a successful def, uh, a version of subcultural practice than than we've ever heard of. Like, like they built a, a town. Yeah. And um, they and elected the, people right. to positions of power. They did all kinds of yeah. And when we talk about the downfall of this cult, the one thing that we have to sort of acknowledge is like, and because they didn't have a thick layer between their cult and the public, they. They lost. In other words, they they quickly went into a confrontational mode with their neighbors, who then mm-hmm. used the power of the state to crush them. Right. Yeah. And of course, we we probably think that the power of the state would have crushed them anyways. Anyway, yeah. But um, you know, but their cult wasn't all that radical. I mean, on some level, it was all, all the things that they argued for have come true basically over time. There's huge vegetarian communities and huge free love communities. All over the place. I mean, most of the free love communities just are bar scenes, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it wasn't radical at all. At all. It was totally a cult of personality. Absolutely. And and was happy to be that. Yeah. So. Anyways. I mean, but a lot of, but a lot of cults, I think one of the interesting things about that series was that it went, that it was long enough that it went into more depth about how it met people's needs. I mean. Like, in other words, what was good about it? Like, that it actually had good things and people were better people afterwards than they were before. And it was very, very sad for them, you know, that it fell apart. It wasn't like this. I think most cult shows represent cults as being inherently abusive and horrible, you know, because they don't show that there's a, that you know, that there were good parts and bad parts and that at some point people got what good what they could out of it and then they could focused on the bad or whatever the hell it is you know that that process is for different people but anyway yeah <clears throat> anyways so so one of the things that we're talking through is this is a tension between um, you know what I would call like subcultural needs or maybe irrational needs um, and maybe really we're talking about irrational versus rational so mm. because of post-left anarchism being a very rational, uh, perspective, at least, you know, in the way in which I'm referring to it as being a series of, of essays that came out of the Joda and a type of umbrella that that, co- that covers a, a particular range of anarchist sensibilities, but, um, uh, but it doesn't necessarily deserve them. Like, so for instance, we oftentimes refer to insurrectionary anarchists as being part of the post-left, but that's in fact not true. No, not, certainly not anymore. And definitely not anymore, because as time has, has gone on, not only is there a pretty active and vibrant red insurrectionary anarchism that that's sort of still thinks that um, attack as a worker um, is a thing, uh, but, you know, some, yeah, anyways, <laughs> totally losing my, my, my uh, uh, train. train of thought, but... But but sort of that that idea that like 
I don't see any evidence that people are breaking out of the failures of that cult. Um, in other words, the like the most like to the extent to which I'm a counterculturalist, like I can't imagine building something that wouldn't be crushed as easily, if if not more easily, than oh, no, what it is that we're talking about yeah. from the seventies. And then from a more rational perspective, like by and large the rational people in our circles are pitching an idea about social revolution with no people, with no power, with like, in other words, they're doing it in this entirely irrational context, but, but because they're using their mind, <laughs> <laughs> somehow they think that they're, they're working on a different terrain. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only place I don't, I don't really have anything to say to that. The places that I would go are, are again, sort of more psychological, like what is, what are the needs getting met? You know, what is it that people are looking for? That is that is working because people do things because it works, you know, as What's much it? as at least as much as it doesn't work. I mean, just to just to give you a contrast, most of the people who are rational people and who use rational argumentation, including some of our closest people, how they get through their daily life is by thinking that they're right. Yeah, I mean, and, and part of, I mean, that is, I mean, this is the Nietzsche, I would, I think this is the Nietzsche fucking complaint about anarchists, right? Is that it's more important for them to be like that, that anarchism, that any sort of extreme ideology um, is appealing to a certain kind of people because they, because the smaller that group is, the more right they are. And that it's absolutely, there's absolutely a subset of anarchists, if not many anarchists who are, that's what's appealing to it about, about it to them. Thank you very much for this conversation. You are welcome. Thank you.